0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: It's Political Rewind time. I'm glad you're all with us for today's show. Got a lot of uh, state news that we're going to talk about today, and we're going to talk a bit... About the debates last night and much more on today's edition of political rewind as all of you know out there greg Bluestein is usually with us on wednesdays uh couldn't be with us today he was in ohio last night for the democratic presidential debate many of you may have seen the stories he's been filing both in the dead tree edition of the paper this morning as well as online at political insider um and we miss him but we got a great panel dr andre gillespie is here, political science professor from Emory University. Um, It's uh, really good to have you here on a day when so much is happening, both at the state and national level. Thanks for coming in, Andre. Thank you. How's the semester going for you? So
0: far, so good. Let's take their midterm today.
1: Oh, oh, I remember those (laughs) days vaguely. (laughs) Next to you is Theron Johnson. He's the founder and the um, principal. Are you the, is it president, CEO, what's the
2: title? Founder and CEO.
1: Founder and CEO of Paramount Consulting, a government relations firm that uh, does some lobbying work, but beyond that, a, a good deal of work con- advising various clients on how to position themselves. Fair way to say it?
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. A uh,
1: former uh, uh, campaign. You, you. Let's see, how do we say this? The Obama re-election campaign, you oversaw the southern, southeastern region of the campaign. Yep,
2: the southern region.
1: And one last thing, credential for you, uh well, two, really. Number one, people can watch you on uh, Georgia Gang on Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Fox 5. But, you know, it's interesting because we did have a Democratic debate last night. You've also been tapped to be part of a small group of advisors for the National Democratic Party. To kind of look at how the party is positioning, how the candidates are doing right, how do we say that?
2: Yeah, it's great. And, you know, we're very fortunate that on November 20th, Georgia is going to have – the presidential debate here sponsored by MSNBC. So um, all that work in the past months is going to definitely pay off because I'll be able to be in the room and make sure we have a Georgia-specific message um, you know, leading up to the debate.
1: Want to talk a little later in the show about last night as it leads to the November 20th debate and also joining us on the panel, Heath Garrett. He is a Republican strategist, one of the best-known Republican strategists in Georgia, longtime advisor to Johnny Isaacs and his former chief of staff, and uh, out there now, you're still working very closely with
3: Johnny Isaacson. I am. He's in his regards, but I uh, see him almost every day now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um. You also have a number of candidates in the 2020 cycle. Do you have Georgia candidates right now, or are you mostly working in other states around the southeast? Our firm is
3: mostly in other states, but yeah. we do have Brandon Beach. Oh, that's right.
1: Brandon Beach. Running for, we're going to is. talk about your candidate, Brandon Beach, and our listeners will do well to remember you're working for him when we talk about it. <laughs> All right. So let's, if we can, start with a look at the... Fundraising totals for the third quarter, which really have been coming in since yesterday was the deadline. So we're starting to see third quarter totals. And before we talk about specific names, Andra, let me turn to you and say, um, should we look at fundraising numbers as um, indicative of the strength of a candidate in this stage of the race or not?
0: It's important to look at them. And so it's important to see what Fundraising actually tells you. It gives a sense of momentum. It gives a sense of whether or not this candidate has a certain type of following. You know, if people are willing to give of their treasure, then that's a sense that, you know, they have people who would be willing to vote for them, willing to volunteer. And then it's just basic stuff. Um, you have to pay consultants, you have to pay for polls, you have to pay for pizza for your volunteers to go knock on doors and make phone calls. And so if a candidate isn't raising money, uh, despite their best efforts or despite their um, I- idea that they can be a good uh, you know, member of Congress or senator, right? there are just certain things that you actually need money in order to get those things done. So it, it certainly is a-, a-, a signal of momentum um, and a campaign and viability.
1: Uh, Theron, we used to say that this is the invisible primary in some ways this is the first election when candidates start telling us how much money they're raising
2: is that accurate to some extent absolutely and I think Dr. Gillespie did a fantastic job of explaining why it's so important I would just add a couple of things I think that in this climate they were in where you know where you're a candidate running in this case um, some of the people who are running to run against David Perdue for the Democratic primary but in the jungle primary you're gonna need money to promote your candidacy and define yourself through your narrative, but more importantly if you start to become the front runner, you're going to need a lot of money to defend yourself. And so I, I think that the the money shows two things. One, that you can go back to some of the folks that you've been to before, and they still believe in you. Mm-hmm. So that's continuity. But also, you can go out and expand your donor base in Georgia and also nationally. And that's one of the things that I'm looking at very closely in these disclosure reports is you have certain people very specifically um, sort of highlighting their ability to raise money in-state but we've seen from other candidates that have been successful in Georgia you've got to be able to have that sort of national network to raise the amount of money you need to be successful.
1: All right, thank you for that. And Heath, I want to talk about Senate numbers first and to put that in some context, uh it is not unrealistic to suggest that the uh, certainly the first race the David Perdue what we're calling race number 1 uh, it is going to be a twenty million dollar race or more per candidate? Yeah,
3: I think that's what we have um, coming forward in both in both races. Right, are going to be yeah. About I guess about that's the right. same race amount number of money. Two is at, the same at, thing at the end of the day. But yeah. we're we're definitely anticipating a twenty million dollar race by the time you go through the primary, possibly a runoff for our Democratic friends. And then you get in the general election. And that does not include super PAC dollars and all the outside independent expenditure groups that'll, they, these candidates either indirectly have to help raise money or are raised on their behalf. We, we think that that race could be $100 million. Oh, my God. It's obviously going to come down a little bit because now you've got two races. Yeah. So maybe you pair it off and each race is an extra $50 million on top.
1: All right. Um, by the way, Um, uh, GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler has filed a story that includes all of the numbers we're going to talk about. So if you go uh, on the GPB News website, you'll find the story there. And maybe you want to follow along with some of these numbers. But, Andre, let me start with the Georgia Senate race. And this is race number one, Mm -hmm. the race against David Perdue. Uh, The Perdue campaign reported that they raised $2.5 million in this third quarter. Um, And, uh, 1.9 1.9 million of that was through the, their actual Senate campaign, meaning they also got some money from outside groups, PACs, uh, presumably. They have now 6.3 million on hand, is what they're reporting. By contrast, uh, Teresa Tomlinson raised 381000 She has $290,000 cash on hand. Sarah Amico raised 760. 000. Thousand four hundred thousand as a loan from herself. She has about four hundred twenty-five thousand on hand. John Assaf, he raised one point three million, and then he adds to that another five hundred thirty thousand that he took, picked up from his race for the sixth district. All of which goes to my question that I want everybody to take a shot at. But I'll start with you. What does this tell us about the ability of Democrats? If you put all the Democrats together, they've done fine. But Purdue looks like the muscle man now
0: well i mean he's coming with incumbency advantage yeah, so sure. i mean we have to uh, you know account for that um i think one of the things that he mentioned that it's really important to kind of bear out and i think it also kind of bears on what theron said is that if you see incumbents starting to raise a lot of money that's also sending a signal that they feel that there's a challenge or that they feel that there's a threat and so part of the reason why we see you know certain races getting expensive is because that's actually indicative of their competitiveness Um, And so uh, what Senator Perdue wants to do is he's trying to create a buffer to try to protect and insulate himself um, from a challenge. And I mean, if he thinks that, you know, raising this amount of money could either help clear the field in some way or, uh, you know, protect him in the event that he does have a really strong challenge, which he should expect, then we shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing these kinds of numbers this early.
1: So, Theron, if you put Asaf Amico and Tomlinson together, and by the way, Ted Terry raised $89,000, they've really, all the Democrats have raised, you know, uh, have come pretty close to raising in the quarter what what David Perdue did, but when you separate out each candidate, when you look at a Teresa Tomlinson who's been in this race the longest of anyone, and at this point she's raised three hundred eighty-one thousand and has two hundred ninety thousand on hand, are Democrats worried that their individual candidates, forgetting about the sum totals? are just
2: not getting out there and getting the numbers they need to win this race? Well, let's just start with Teresa Tomlinson. Sure. I think that her first quarter, a lot of folks thought that she would have done better. But you know, a lot of us in the Democratic Party, we felt that it was a respectful number that she posted in the first quarter. So then she comes back this quarter and, and reports, which you just um, uh, indicated, roughly almost $400,000. Um, but what I'm really looking at in, in the Teresa Tomlinson campaign bill is the spin rate. And Heath and I have been Mm -hmm. in campaigns, and so I think philosophically, she is spending a lot more money than probably you would think this early in the race. But I think that she's doing it because she's really getting out of ground the state. I think she's hosting a lot of different events, and I think she's really saying, "Hey, you know what? I need to get my name ID up now, and hopefully that the money will come in a little later." What it looks like with Ossoff is, I don't care who you are, to basically be able to raise $800,000 in three weeks, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah. And, and I think it was a confluence of him staying in contact with the many people that donate to his campaign when he ran unsuccessfully for Congress, and then also utilizing his network through social media and, and direct calling uh, to really raise that money. And then, more importantly, to have $1.3 million on hand. You can kind of tell that his philosophy is is that, hey, I'm going to have as much money as I can and to spend it at the end. But Sarah Riggs Amico is sort of the one that's kind of interesting that I think is doing a combination of both of them. I think she loaned herself money. $400,000 mm-hmm. $400, is a big amount. Uh, I don't know if any of us on this panel has $400,000 to lend to our, our for for U.S. Senate. Um, But she's also spending a lot, and I think that she also knows that she's got to show her donors hey, I'm willing to put some skin in the game, so I'm going to give myself $400,000. But more importantly, I think it now helps her with credibility to go out and spend a little bit. And in Ted Terry, you know, $90,000. A lot of folks thought that he was going to do a little bit better than that, because for those of us who know Mayor Ted, he does have some grassroots fundraising ability. So maybe he just didn't have enough organization to really show a strong number this quarter. But that was a little disappointing.
1: Yeah. But on the other hand, I wonder about Ted Terry. Um, You know, he he's the he's the vice chair of the state Democratic Party, one of the vice chairs. Uh, So he's got a place in the party. He's not. He appears, uh, Heath, that he's not going to be terribly competitive as a real candidate uh, to win the nomination. But it, it, is it fair to say that maybe Ted Terry's ambition is a little different than that? If he can stay in there and keep getting his progressive message out, if he can make it to the debates that will take place next year, is he in fact winning to some extent in that he's injecting that progressive philosophy that he believes the party needs to adopt.
3: Well, I think the real opportunity for him there is that if he can make it that far, then low dollar donors propensity for him will increase over time. And then he becomes a major impact in that primary, right? We as Republicans look out there and go, we like the fact that there are six or seven people in this primary. And, you know, there's a kind of a lane for each type of uh, liberalism or progressivism or wherever you want to be in this regard. And they're fighting it out. And then you have John Ossoff, who is a little bit of an nominally because he has... A donor network of probably you know hundreds of thousands of national donors who's coming in or who are coming in, and he did do an impressive job. And we as Republicans took note of that. That we don't think he's going to raise the forty-five million that he did in a special election when nothing else well, was going he, on. He in the doesn't country. think he
1: can do right, that either, and
3: I don't think he does. But at the same point in time, he does. He is sitting on one point three million dollars, and in a contested primary, that's a lot of money given the number, the raw number of Democratic voters who'll be voting voting in May of next year. So he's, he's got a great head start.
1: So, Andre, I started this by asking whether the numbers, the fundraising numbers, tell us something about where the candidates stand mm-hmm. in the race. Does Do the fundraising numbers that Asaf has pulled in suggest that he is the Democratic frontrunner at this stage? Or is that uh, uh, too uh, too facile an argument to make?
0: Well, I mean, what I would say is with those numbers, Asaf has made a claim that he is competitive and that he's going to be in this race for the long haul and i think he's putting the other candidates on notice that he is somebody a force to be contended with and that um, i think he's trying to send a signal and i think he's doing it effectively with these numbers that his 2017 race wasn't a fluke and that he's a, a player and should be taken seriously even on a, on a statewide level as well.
1: Yeah. You know, Heath, I, I thought Theron said something really interesting about Teresa Tomlinson. And I, I'd love to hear your take on sure. it. And, and then Theron also get you in on it. Um, he said that Teresa Tomlinson has been spending money in part because she's really out there around the state. I know he's right because she's done a very good job communicating that. Teresa Tomlinson has been terrific. She does it herself. She sends texts left and right to many of us who are following the campaign about where she is in any given day. But here's why I think that's interesting. If you ask people around here whether they think Tomlinson, given her fundraising and also given that they haven't seen much of her, whether she's hanging in there all right, a lot of them would say, well, no, I, we've, she's invisible. But She's not. But at this stage of the race, being out there, any candidate out there traveling the state and building your network is terribly important, even if it isn't making the headlines of the newspapers or on TV and radio.
3: I think what she's doing is a little bit of a rural, exurban strategy. The, the reason why a lot of folks in the Atlanta area aren't used to that is because it's usually concentrate on DeKalb, Fulton, Clayton, and then kind of work your way out from there. But if she puts together 120 counties, right, who have organization and small dollar donors now, those numbers do add up to enough to win a Democratic primary and that she's playing to her strength. She is well known by every mayor of every town. small than Columbus, Georgia. There's a rule in Georgia, you know every town larger than yours, right? So if you're from a town of 200 people, you know all these towns. She is well known out there amongst those 120, 130 counties that aren't core metro. I like the fact that she's playing to her strength there now. She is going to have to make a move in here and she's going to have to find larger dollar donors here in order to compete with an Ossoff and others. But uh, and the one thing I want to bring up, Bill, the one person whose name is not on this fundraising list that I think still has the most influence on both fundraising and electability in the Democratic primary is Stacey Abrams on who these candidates are. And, you know, her name, I think that hurt Teresa a little bit with fundraising, because remember, for the first almost half of the year, Stacey was out there as a potential candidate. I think Teresa's juggernaut starting to get going. Uh, I'm not obviously for any of these candidates, but at the end of the day, I think she uh, the next quarter is going to tell a lot. Theron, your thought about that—you
1: know, this notion that people aren't seeing a lot of her—is, f- first of all, is part of the reason she may not be raising as much money as we would expect. She could do. Because she isn't as well-known in metro Atlanta, or is that not a fact
2: here? Well, actually, you know, I actually um, have seen a lot of her in okay. metro Atlanta. Uh, and I think that if I talk to some of the insiders, I had dinner with one gentleman who, um, you know, who's been around Democratic politics in Georgia for about four decades. And and what I think that Teresa Tomlinson is doing, Bill, is that you're right. She's not doing the traditional, you know, go out and have a town hall meeting in DeKalb County. Or, you know, I know she was at the Pride Parade this, yeah. this weekend, right? So she she's definitely here, but she's doing a lot of smaller meetings one on one with folks and folks leave those meetings feeling uh, very impressed. But I want to also respond to something that Heath just said, and I think that this is where I think ossoff is in the unique position. Um, because, while yes, she has spent time working the southeastern part of the state and other parts of the state because she's a mayor. She's gone to the Georgia Municipal Association, I'm sure, and, and, and um, you know, t- sort of talking to those folks. But when you have $1.3 million on hand, I want to go back to that, is at the blink of, a, of an eye, John Ossoff can put together a digital Earned media, something, some paid media strategy that can go into these targeted areas across the state and immediately penetrate the homes through a targeted effort to really make sure that he drives a message and he drives up his name ID. So I think to Heath's point, while she is spending an enormous amount of time, and I think Sarah Riggs and Miko is spending some time in our state too, she's got to have a good quarter because if Ossoff posts another 800,000, million, million, five, two million quarter then I think that is going to shape up to what Dr. Gillespie just said, is that he definitely will be in the top tier based on money because he'll be able to compete with all of the money that's going to come his way if he's a nominee.
0: But I think here is what Tomlinson's gamble is, because she is, a, you know, a not metro Atlanta person. John Ossoff, we know, plays very well here um, mm-hmm. in the metro area, particularly, you know, in the northern suburbs where he ran for Congress. It's not clear yet how he his message, um, his story would actually resonate outside of that particular area. You know, does he work well with rural audiences? Does he work well with older voters? Mm-hmm. You know, who may look at him as being too young and too inexperienced compared to a Teresa Tomlinson, um, you know, who has you know the right type of experience that one would expect of somebody who you know is running um, for statewide office at this point. Um, and so, you know, while the strategy of sort of you know digital everything and Knocking on doors, and which I don't dispute by any stretch of the imagination, in mail, you know the tolerance that people had in the sixth district for people showing up at their door the fifteenth time. Yeah, um, you know I don't know how that's going to play in Vidalia sure. or in other parts of the um, state.
1: I want to make one comment, and then I want to quickly move on to the sixth and seventh district races, just to look very briefly at fundraising there, and that was, and that is to make this point, uh, Andra. Um, Nobody listening to this show and looking at these totals where Democrats have perhaps not performed as well as, as Democrats would like them to should mistake the fundraising going on for the Democratic candidates well before the primary and what's going to happen when the Democrats have a nominee. For for the uh, for the for, for the David Perdue seat, then money's going to flow. This should not oh. fool people into thinking somehow the Democrats aren't going to raise a lot of money. Oh, right? clearly, yeah. All right, um, let me throw out six district uh, very quickly. Uh, Lucy McBath raised uh, six hundred twenty-three thousand in the quarter. Karen Handel two hundred fifty-two thousand. Brandon Beach, 167,000, and gun rights activist Marjorie Taylor Greene raised about 102,000. Theron, Uh, What do you make of those figures? What do they tell us?
2: The power of (laughs) of incumbency um, from Lucy McBath. I mean, now that's someone who, um, if you're a Democrat, Republican, or Independent, she's not only been to all of the events around town, but she has been relentless in her fundraising. And so this number, 620,000 raised in a quarter, is pretty impressive. And I think what she's gearing up is to be in a very tough battle or whoever the, uh, the Republican nominee is going to be. Um, you know, I think on the Republican side, you see Karen Handel uh, sort of had a good quarter this year. I mean, this this, uh, this quarter. Uh, Brandon Beach, Chairman Beach, had a good quarter last time. And, and this quarter that he posted this time is, is respectful. It's not I mean, bad. It's not bad because, I yeah. mean, again... A lot of folks got to realize Karen Hendel, who's been a person who's run for a lot of different offices in the state, was a uh, congresswoman. Uh, she's expected to try to pace, you know, post these numbers. Again, I go back to the cash on hand. I don't know if, uh, if we know how much they I have.
1: I was going to ask Heath, do you yeah. know, what is, what is Br- Brandon, who raised a hundred? your
3: candidate again, 167k raised, how much cash
1: on hand do you have in that
3: case? He's got over 400000 cash on, on hand, hand. And, 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 and she's just over 600000 So okay. I thought, okay. you know, we think that's a respectable pay. He's yeah. given the challenger... Uh, status there. And we're very respectful. I think that if any Republican thought that Lucy McBath was going to hang out in Washington and just phone it in, uh, this is a this is a reminder, as I say to it. And I think the inverse of what we said, David Perdue's out there working hard because he knows the threat is there. Uh, you know, obviously, when we look at the numbers, we think there's a good opportunity in the six to take that back for Republicans.
1: I, I'm interested in the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I, I think is probably one of the least known candidates uh, in that race, uh, raised over $100,000. And you've got to a assume assume it's on the strength of her fierce defense of of, uh, the Second Amendment, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, so she has this clear issue that she's identified with, and so she can raise money on that from people who are like-minded. I think the bigger question is how many people are like-minded uh, you know, who share her same views on gun rights and who are making that their top issue. So I think it's just a question of sort of how big that single issue issue sort of voter group is um, and that'll determine sort of the I guess the limits or the horizons of how much she's able to raise money.
1: Let's go quickly before we have to take a break to the 7th District. Uh, Luce, uh, uh, Bordeaux, Carolyn Bordeaux is at uh, $285,000 raised. Uh, you know what's under Karen Shack? uh, uh He raised hmm. 209000 Dollars, and Lynn Homerick, never before in elected politics, um, introduced on the scene. I believe I'm right in saying Theron by Eric Tannenblad. I don't know whether Eric's actually helping her campaign, but he was uh, um, suggesting she'd be a great candidate up there. She raised uh, more money than Renee Underman. Hamrick raised 170. Underman raised 128. Theron, I suppose, some of that Lynn Hamrick money is because her husband is a big. Uh, um, executive in Arthur M. Blank's uh, uh, company. He, he's a, a Falcons uh, uh, guy, Atlanta United guy. I think that doesn't
2: hurt, right? No, no. And listen, she she's doing a lot of fundraising up there. But listen, I think that there's two things that I take away from these numbers. Um, Zara, as we call her, as you know, Senator, yeah. um, she definitely posted a very impressive number. I um, mean, she got in this race. You know, a lot of folks wanted to keep her in the legislature. And then I think if you also look at Renee Utterman, I mean, I think that a lot of folks who know Senator Utterman, she's historically never raised yeah. a whole lot of money. Yeah. But I think that they probably wanted to have a better quarter. But I think in, in this case, she feels that she's got sort of a grasp on that area because she's been in the Senate there for a long time. And they don't count out Nabila Islam as well, uh, who I think posted pretty close to almost $100,000.
1: 100000 you are right. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't mention her. Yeah. Thank
2: you. Young, young, bright, up-and-coming Democratic star, and that's a respectful number. And so uh, the good news about all this is that while I think that there's presidential fatigue in Georgia, I mean, people are still giving a lot of money to these congressional candidates uh, as well as presidential candidates. And So this is a good sign for Democrats.
1: Um, All right, let's do this. Uh, Let's take, by the way, Brenda Lopez Came in at $32,000, not able to raise a whole lot of money. It's interesting, Andra, she, too, has been so active in getting out news releases about her campaign and hosting events up in uh, the 7th District for her campaigns. But so far, it just hasn't come together for in fundraising.
0: Yeah, so I mean, if she is, you know, using her grassroots outreach efforts to build a base of support of people who will vote for her, I think it's just a question of could the campaign survive long enough um, with the limited funds that it has in order to kind of get her to a to a primary. So, okay.
2: Oh. And, she, and she got in a little late, too. Yeah. So I want our listeners to know that she, I think she's the last one to kind of enter the race. So oh,
1: Okay, uh, let's do this. Uh, people can look at all the numbers again in uh, uh, Stephen uh, uh, Fowler's report on uh, GPB News, and it includes some of your congressional, your Republican congressional incumbents. They're raising a good amount of money. We know that, right, Heath? They're out there taking care of their business. (laughs) All right. right. Uh, Let's do this. Let's take our first break of the show. When we come back, a lot more on Political Rewind. Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck,
2: or RV? GPB's vehicle donation program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org cars or call
1: 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227.
0: And thanks so much. Tonight in Ohio, 12 Democratic presidential hopefuls meet on one stage. Will the House impeachment inquiry into President Trump dominate the night? I'm Audie Cornish. Find out where the candidates stand, who will shine, and who will clash. The CNN New York Times Democratic presidential debate, available live on CNN or listen here from NPR News. Join us tonight from 8 to 11 here on GPB and on GPBNews.org.
1: Well, every now and then we make some mistakes <laughs> that promo for last night's debate in ohio uh, obviously and but you know what it's okay andre that they played it because that leads us into our next topic of conversation which is we talk a little bit about what happened on the stage last night in the democratic uh, debate but also let's push forward mm-hmm. to the fact that we're going to be seeing the candidates next year. uh Somewhere, we think, in metro Atlanta on November 20th. So let me do this to start things off. You're all really acute observers. You don't need me to pose big questions about this. I'd love to go around um, and start with you, Andra. Just give me your basic reaction to last night. Did you like the issues that they uh, were putting forward? Did you think anybody had a breakthrough moment? Elizabeth Warren being on the defensive. Just give us your take on last night.
0: So I'm not surprised that Elizabeth Warren was on the defensive as she moves into front runner status. That comes with the territory. Um, And so uh, the fact that she's still being evasive on how she's going to pay for her health care plan, I view is still a bit of a problem. Um, And basically the takeaway um, of last night is that, and we've known this already, but I think it's very clear, there are two lanes. So basically by the time we get down to the end of this primary season, there's going to be a progressive candidate and there's going to be a moderate candidate. Um, Right now it looks like Elizabeth Warren is kind of in the first place position. Even though Bernie Sanders clearly is not going to give up without a fight, and from a health standpoint, he looked fine last night, his heart attack notwithstanding. Right now, Joe Biden is, you know, in the front-runner position in the moderate status. You could see Pete Buttigieg and and Amy Klobuchar clearly vying to take biden's place if he falters um and i think that that's still a very very open question um you know i I doubt that much is going to change necessarily as a result of last night's last night's debate so even though there were you know tweetable moments and other kinds of things i didn't really think that any of the lesser tier candidates had the breakthrough type of moment that's actually going to reshuffle um the order of candidates in the race so you know in that respect it was a little bit uneventful for me
2: yeah Theron. I think it was very clear that Senator Elizabeth Warren expected to be attacked. I agree with Dr. Gillespie. I think that she needs to be more concise and specific on how she's going to pay for her health care plan. I think that Uncle Joe, as we like to call him, had moments where he wanted to show that fire in the belly. He really turned to his experience being ready on day one, and I know that his advisors have been telling him um, that that's a benefit of his age, uh, that he's been in the White House and he knows what to do. I think. Pete Buttigieg is the one to really, really watch here because I mean he raised 19 million dollars in the quarter, third only behind Senator Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders. I think my boy Cory Booker missed an opportunity uh, in a debate. I, I, we love Cory for a lot of different reasons. One because he's intelligent. He really cares about poverty. He cares about gun violence and lifting up um, you know minorities. But you know, this sort of, you know, can't everyone get along kind of approach in this debate, I think, was the wrong
1: tactic. If I can wait, you know, we talked about him a little bit before the show, because Andrew Gillespie wrote a book about his tenure as mayor of Newark. Um, he the, the, the authenticity of his compassion is so palpable. And. Um, but this may not be the moment for that kind of approach to running in an election but at this
2: right now, as of October, you know, fifteenth, sixteenth. Yeah, and and but for those who know me, listen. Besides Corey being uh, my ball hair brother in the, in the struggle, <laughs> um, I, I actually I actually like him a lot. Yeah, and, and, he seems and, 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 I, and I think out of everyone that is running, I have the the most connection to him. And then lastly, listen. I think that uh, Senator Klobuchar. Uh, I mean, where has that debate performance been. You know, she jumped in at the right moments. Um, she sort of was a sort of moderate contradiction to some of the liberal sort of talks was there. And then I think there was just a huge respect to a lot of different Republicans in the debate, but everyone, almost everyone showed a lot of admiration for the late Senator John McCain. Yeah, And I think that was a key moment uh, where Democrats at least showed some levity in their message and they can get along with Republicans.
1: Heath, I want to honor my promise to say you can talk about it in any way you want to, which you certainly can, but I I I do want to throw one thing in. I listen to the Medicare for all or not for all debate, and I'm a little—I mean, I think of myself as a policy walk to some extent, but I have a hard time with that debate and understanding the positions of each candidate, and I wonder— it, maybe I'm just not as smart as voters out there But I wonder if there's an opacity to the all the talk about the subtleties and the differences of the plans And whether it comes across to voters you go first and then under can't wait to jump
3: in <laughs> Well Let me give the broader perspective first, right? I looked at it as a Republican concerned about who we're going to be having to defend against, you know in November of next year and I thought some of the same assessment you all had as Democrats is who the nominee ought to be is true. We kind of see two lanes as Republicans, a progressive lane and a moderate, maybe, and I would call it the winnable lane for the Democrats. Uh, I do think that it's interesting. I think Amy Klobuchar is coming up. I think I think Elizabeth Warren is taking from both Bernie Sanders and from Joe Biden a little bit uh, because of, of some unique reasons. But I, I do think she's joined more by the Mayor bootages, I think, takes from both um, progressive lane and the moderate lane as well because he's such a pragmatic person when it comes to governing and to fiscal issues, but with the social issues, he's he's obviously a, a great beacon of hope for the Democratic Party. There, so I looked at it all. It was a little bit of a snooze fest because there weren't as many fireworks, uh, and because Bill, you you, you nailed it, uh, tending to still get too lost in the weeds on the details, and I'm glad that the journalists are trying to push everybody on, how do you pay for these things? What are they? If you say Medicare for all, how do you define all? I thought the Democrats have a great message in Medicare for all, because I know how that will poll test with independent voters in November of next year, but they are getting bogged down in it, and it's getting exposed right now, and uh, I do think it'll be an issue. We, we, I've seen data that shows Medicare for all comes across to independent voters as, as a form of socialism. Uh, I Sandra, you had a visceral reaction
1: when I said I thought it was hard to un- understand the subtleties.
0: Well, I mean, so here is, is the issue. And here's why Elizabeth Warren doesn't want to answer the question about how she's going to pay for it, right? It's going to, it's going to require a tax increase, right? Yeah. And nobody wants to pay taxes. So we have visceral knee-jerk reactions to taxes in this country. The way Bernie Sanders explains it actually makes a whole lot of sense. Yes, your taxes are going to go up, but your, you won't have insurance premiums anymore. Yeah. So it's just an offset. And so I think it's a question of is it a true offset or would the taxes go up at a higher rate than the offset would be? Right. But nobody wants to say that because as soon as you say tax, taxes. people lose yeah, their you see, minds.
1: that Then Heath Garrett's going to be running that, right, that, that commercial <laughs> against
0: you. Right. Then he's excited. But and I think also, We have
1: 60 years to understand <laughs> there's not
3: going to be an offset. Okay, Right. And so, I mean, but
0: and I think probably the bigger question here and the other really important theme in terms of not just where people are ide- ideologically is. You know, Democrats are offering change. It is a change from Donald Trump. doesn't matter which one of them gets the nomination. They are going to be the polar opposite of Donald Trump. But it's a question of what kind of change do people want? And so progressives are betting on the fact that they want to use this moment of instability and chaos to completely remake the American state versus those who are like, no, we were actually kind of okay with the way the world was in 2015. And so we just like to go back to that because I just this has been as too much of a sensory overload. and I kind of want to go back to something that's familiar. And so what we don't know yet is what kind of change do Democratic voters, and broadly speaking, the American electorate
1: yeah. want. OK, I want to go a quick round on this one and, and see if you can, if, if this is a fair question. And, Andre, you got the football, so I'll start with you. Um, maybe one word answer. Of all the candidates on that stage last night and the way they talk, which candidate is most likely to appeal to Georgia voters?
0: Oh, too hard. Pass. Okay. I'll come back to it.
3: Heath um, Theron, no, go ahead, Pete. I, I think Joe Biden uh, appeals mostly to Georgia Democratic voters, or we're talking about general election voters. He's yeah. definitely well, the sure. winner yeah. uh, in the general election, but I think he still speaks to kind of where I view the Democratic primary is on both electability and stability. He's more and moderate is, and is tied to Barack Obama. Yeah, you know,
2: what do you think, Theron? I think it's Democratic primary voters in Georgia. I think it's Booker and Harris because okay. we know that wow. um, minorities wow. make up. Yeah, I'm telling you, I think. Not that,
1: Biden, despite how well he polls with African American voters.
2: It's a long time before we get to Georgia. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, but but general, I agree. I think Uncle Joe would be the best for us in general. Wow. Here in Georgia.
1: Real quick.
0: Okay, so. OK, and I am taking advantage of the fact that I went last. I think it's whoever has the most momentum. By the of this. Um, you know, so I mean, if, if we're going on 2016, for instance, right, then if, if if Joe Biden is the Hillary Clinton of this race, then yes, I think Heath is right. Um, I'm not quite sure what kind of momentum Booker and Harris are going to have. So the idea that they're actually even in the race by March 23rd, I think, is an open question. Yeah. So I, I think that probably Georgia voters will be more likely to sort of place their finger on who is the perceived front-runner at that point. Okay,
1: Uh, real quick, also, I want to throw something out. Uh, uh, Jimmy Carter got a shout-out during the debate last night because it was Carter who not too long ago said, once you're 75, you're too old to be president of the United States, which was interpreted as a slap at uh, certainly at Joe Biden uh, Elizabeth Harris is uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren is is moving in that direction too. But let me just real quickly share with you the results of a CBS UGov poll on that. Uh, vo- voters were asked in the early voting states uh, about whether people are too old or not. Candidates in the race, Elizabeth Warren would be seventy one on inauguration day. Only 4% of people said she'd be too old to be president. Joe Biden will be 78. 28% of respondents said he would be too old. Bernie Sanders will be 79. And 43% of voters said, w- you're just playing too old. Why is it a problem for Biden if he is 78 years old? Uh, it's two- 36% said it's too difficult for he to be able to do the job. 54% said he'd be out of touch. 10% said to be too long in politics. Uh, the, the numbers on Sanders are particularly bad, though, and especially, I think, Theron after the heart attack, because that's when this poll was done. 82% of the people in the early voting states said it would be too difficult for him to do the job. Now, we remember that Donald Trump will be 74. 73-4 four, four, uh, if he wins re-election. He's three now. Yeah, he's 73. Okay, so he'd be 75 uh, at, at re-election time. How is age going to be an, a, a, an, an issue down the road?
2: You know, I think that's why I said earlier we got to keep an eye on Mayor Pete Buttigieg, yeah. and that's why, Dr. Gillespie, I put... Uh, Booker and Harris and the race because listen, if they don't win South Carolina, then I agree. They don't make it to Georgia. But let's hypothetically say that they sort of take that mantle as being a more young, progressive, vibrant uh, person. But here's the thing that I would push back and I was hoping that Bernie Sanders would have said this in the debate. If you poll young Democratic voters, the majority of them are with Bernie. They love Bernie. And, That's really right. And so 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 I would I would have hoped that he would have said, Hey, while I'm you know old and yes I've had a heart attack and I have to stand on the stage for three hours but I have more young people Democratic voters supporting me to anyone on the stage, and so I think it's still going to be about the message, but age will play a part in the race.
0: I mean, you know, it's it's tough, and, and I would say sort of about the heart attack. And while you know I'm thrilled to see Senator Sanders look like he's re, you know recovered from this or is recovering nicely from this, if Pete Buttigieg had had a heart attack last week, I would be saying you need to go take care of yourself and then come back in a few years. Now, you know, that's a different type of scenario with somebody who you know is is, is Senator Sanders' age, but when you seen somebody have that type of serious health incident, it does raise questions about stamina and also whether or not you would actually be able to live to see your term in office. So I think it's legitimate. And I think the reason why those numbers get progressively worse the older the candidates get is a realization of life cycle. So if Elizabeth Warren is somewhat immune from it, one, she's actually a bit younger than they are. Yeah. Um my mom's a little bit older than she is, um, and um, you know, swears she's young. So and you can still do that, um, you know, um, you know, and, and, and Elizabeth Warren hasn't and actually for that matter, Joe Biden hasn't given any public indications. They haven't had some type of physical faltering in public that would suggest that they're not physically up for the job. No. But given their age, you gotta ask the question. Well, and
3: remember you as Democrats remember this, Hillary Clinton stumbling and faint, fainting into a car late in the general election had an impact on the polls for her against Donald. Donald Trump, because he looked so he looked younger and more vibrant, and energetic. Um, we saw that dip. And I think the only thing I think is that Donald Trump looks forward to attacking uh, Joe Biden or uh, Bernie Sanders for being older than he is.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get our second break of the show out of the way. And then when we come back, let's talk about the fact that Democrats will be headed here in less than a month now or just about a month now for uh, their next presidential debate. You're listening to Political Rewind.
0: I'm Sandy Scott, Director of Marketing at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia. The Booth Museum is a 120,000 square foot art museum that also has a presidential gallery. The museum is actually the largest Western art museum in the Southeast. We underwrite with GPB because it reaches a a multitude of people that we normally would not reach. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, director, screenwriter, and actor Taika Waititi. His new film, Jojo Rabbit, won this year's Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival. Set in Nazi Germany, it's a comedy-drama about a 10-year-old boy who's brainwashed in the organization Hitler Youth. Waititi also directed the hit film Thor Ragnarok. Join us.
1: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Heath Garrett is with us, Darren Johnson, Dr. Andre Gillespie. Okay, November 20th, the Democrats are coming to Georgia. speculate The speculation is that we're going to do it in metro Atlanta somewhere. That doesn't necessarily have to happen, but it makes uh, the most sense, I guess. Um, and before we talk about what, what we think about where the debate should take place, let me point out that last night we had 12 candidates on the stage, Uh, So far, because the Democratic National Committee rules get a little tighter in terms of qualifications uh, for the debate, uh, we only have eight qualified for the debate in Georgia. Biden, Booker, Buttigieg, Harris, Sanders, Warren, Yang, and uh, I guess Steyer has uh, made the cut at this point. So that means really that Castro, Klobuchar, O'Rourke, Gabbard, Uh, and and a host of others down the way that are not so far in this debate. Um, So one of the good things, uh, Dr. Gillespie, unless all of a sudden people, you know, get more polling uh, that puts them over the top or raise more money in among certain number of donors, we're going to see a much more focused debate.
0: I would hope so. But, you know, I mean, one of the things that's different from this debate, and it was the same threshold rules for this debate as it was for the September debate, but the, the debate field grew. Um, and actually don't think that that was actually to the advantage of anybody. It just diluted the amount of time that people had to be able to speak. Um, and the people who got added to the race, no offense to them or their campaigns, but are not going to be the nominee. Um, and so, you know, part of me, if I had my ways, I would actually say, look, we should tighten these things up a little bit more to make it even harder to get in so that there could actually be a much more focused um, debate than there was uh, before. Um, you know, of the four who aren't, uh, you know, who haven't yet qualified, who aren't on the stage last night um, I think you know all eyes are going to be on Amy Klobuchar to see whether or not she actually makes it onto the stage so I don't think it's set at eight. I wouldn't be surprised you know if it ended up you know at nine or 10. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps even more, Sharon. Why
1: is it a good thing that the Democrats are going to stage a debate in Georgia? I, I mean, that may be a self-evident question, but I'd love to hear what you say about that. Well,
2: before I get into that, I all just right. want you to know that I saw this. You know, this man in 1992 doing this Democratic debate <laughs> with full head hair and, and questioning uh, former President Bill Clinton. Yeah. So, so, big shout out to you. Yeah. Bill. Uh, you know, um, I,
1: all I do is when I see that video, which somebody <laughs> posted on Facebook and other places, is realize that you better learn. To ask shorter questions and I get to, but no. go ahead.
2: No, listen, this is a phenomenal opportunity for Georgia Democrats. We have been saying for years now, and Heath and a lot of other folks have been hearing me say it, that Georgia is purple and it's a, going to be a battleground state in 2020. This debate, to me, cements that thought process, right? Because not only are you going to have these wonderful candidates who want to offer themselves for the Presidency of the United States in Georgia, but what you saw in Ohio is that there was a lot of references about the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to point out is I think Senator Kamala Harris' answer about women's reproductive rights was one of the best answers she's given throughout her campaign, just particularly on that subject. So we know we live in a state right now where a heartbeat bill uh, has passed the legislature. It was signed by the governor, which is not law yet. So Georgia is going to be front and center. So what the candidates are doing right now, Bill, and I know this because I got a little inside information, they're now shifting all of their Ohio statistics to now to Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so what you're going to see is is that while this is a national debate, every campaign now is trying to figure out how do I win over not just Georgia voters, but Southern, Southern voters. Southern and and yeah. I think that's the significance of this. Um, and I think that All of the Democrats who have just been suffering for these last 17 years since we've lost the governor's mansion and lost certain parts of the legislature and constitutional offices. If you cannot get excited about this debate, then you shouldn't be calling yourself a Democrat in Georgia. Lastly, I think the thing that's going to also be interesting is that. It's a fundraising opportunity for the state party and other local officials who really need this spotlight and need this money. Um, this is an opportunity for them to really tap into this debate being held in Georgia.
1: You know, Keith, to, to piggyback on what uh, Theron is just saying, I, I can imagine some of the research that will, is already underway or will be. So, if the sixth and seventh congressional districts are as crucial to Democrats as w- we think uh, they are, as to Republicans, of course, right. then uh, you can imagine research on the kind of industries that are that are up there you know in those districts are some of them closing down what's happening with employment in those area I mean all those same kinds of things that is there and pointed out were discussed in the debate last night uh, about the Columbus Ohio
3: area no I think that the Democrats have an interesting challenge and obviously it's 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 gonna be good for the Democrats that this debate come to town is going to create some enthusiasm, raise some dollars. I think it's interesting. I think that they're in this kind of catch-22. They're going to have to trash the state of Georgia, right, in order to make way for these uh, kind of draconian, socialistic solutions that they have. And so we as Republicans are looking wait, at... Wait, wait,
1: wait. Like, I, I want to back you up. What do you mean they're going to have to trap? Maybe I, I, you should I, explain yeah, I should what you mean. Yeah,
3: we think that they're obviously going to attack the legislature. They're going to attack uh, the Republican uh, okay. majority here. They're going, to, okay. they're going to talk about how poor Georgia is. They're going to, you know, in order to make the case... And it's hard because folks come in from the Northeast. They've got this narrative about the South that Georgia doesn't fit into. But they've got to they've got to pitch that nationally as part of the Democratic. For example, and we're going to talk a lot about. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion about what we believe is a false narrative on voter uh, uh, integrity in yeah. the in the state of Georgia. Uh, they're going to do this. And I th- so I think that the Republicans have an interesting choice. Do we do we chase that right, which I, I think would be it's going to be bad for the state of Georgia, or do we highlight the solutions that most of these presidential candidates to be offering, which I don't think are in line with where the general election in Georgia is right now. And so we as Republicans have an opportunity here to take advantage of this and highlight these kind of socialistic leaning solutions that Democrats are going to highlight. The Democrats have an opportunity to make their case at the national scene. Sarah, so, you want to respond to that and then Andre?
2: So I agree with Heath. Listen, while I'm excited and you can hear it in my voice, I think this is the most amped up I've been on the show uh, today. <laughs> But Heath is right it also is going to motivate the Republican base yeah. in a way that you know we haven't seen before but I do think that what I've been telling the National Democratic campaigns is don't come in here and trash Georgia make sure that your message is solution based on what you would do if you were president and how you would work with leaders in Georgia to bring that change And so I think you know Southerners we're right we don't you know we don't really like um, outsiders so to speak to come in but I Again, I think that's where you'll see a Cory Booker, a Kamala Harris, and, and Beto, and Joe Biden, who spend an enormous amount of time here, more so than a lot of other candidates. And they're going to feel comfortable in this space. And then it's going to be all the events leading up to the debates. One of the things I want to kind of take your listeners into, Bill, is that I've been to now three debates. Yeah. There's a lot of events that go on days before the, the debate. And then, believe it or not, these candidates get up the next morning and go do a lot of different, you know, our media events and different events to try to ramp up support. So Georgia's going to be on fire during that time.
1: Andrei, um the, the only thing I would ask about Heath, Heath's comments about trashing Georgia, mm-hmm. you know, Stacey Abrams proved in the 2018 gubernatorial race that you can run a relatively liberal race here and still attract a great many voters. So, yeah.
0: so you know, you, while I don't hold out the fact that there could be somebody who holds stereotypes about the South. I, you know, I think that that's actually a mischaracterization of Democratic candidates, some of whom have Southern ties. Um, so we think about better O'Rourke being a Texan. We could think about Cory Booker's parents used to, who used to live out by Perimeter Mall. So this is a place he would come to visit. So it's not that people are, have the sort of this foreign idea of the South. Um And so they're also campaigning here as well. And so the idea that you would come into somebody's home and trash it and then ask for their vote and expect to be treated nicely is also something that I think the candidates themselves are going to be pretty mindful about as well. And so they're going to be making a pitch. And so I think the interesting thing will be to see what the ideological tone and tenor of that is. And so they're thinking that voters here are going to be more moderate in their tone. And so what you might see is that the progressives are going to sound a little bit more populist than progressive. And you're going to see the moderate saying, look, this is in my wheelhouse so you might hear and I don't know whether or not it would resonate that much you know a Pete Buttigieg since he's definitely going to be there and an Amy Klobuchar if she makes it there trying to make connections to how Midwestern values are very similar to Southern values and trying to fit all of that together. One
1: of the things that's going to be interesting as we get really close to being out of time is that although they'll be in Georgia by the time of the debate next month um, Iowa really becomes much more crucial right now Um, next week you're going to see a lot of Democrats spending time in Ohio and Theron it's Pete Buttigieg, who has a tremendous edge in terms of ground game there. He's he's put together a massive organization. By the time they get to Atlanta, we'll have seen more polling on where Iowa voters, uh, caucus goers stand. And that could have an impact on how he's treated in that debate next month.
2: It, absolutely. And I'm also hearing that Senator Booker has a great ga- a ground game in, yes. in Iowa as well. But the other thing is, too, let's talk about, we you know we spend a lot of time talking about the candidates. These U.S. Senate candidates. You've got 30 the seconds to talk about this. They don't. <laughs> (laughs) want a lot of sort of left progressive you know tribal comments in this debate they want someone to come in here and kind of get people riled up but don't leave the state at a point where they got to defend what some of these presidential candidates have said when they were here to debate so i think we got to be careful
1: maybe more cory booker like uh let's all be nice to each other talk (laughs) we'll see that's it we're out of time as always There are subjects we left on the table today. Thank goodness we're back here at 2 o'clock on Friday to talk about the Georgia Southern book burning, the Pickens County decision on transgender bathrooms, and so much more. In the meantime, Heath Garrett, Theron Johnson, Andre Gillespie, thank you for such a great conversation today. And thank you all for being with us for today's show. I'll see you Friday at 2.